0: This week it's Ezekiel 44 17 through 27 and the title is what does real holiness look like and we're going to see Jesus addressing practical holiness with the priests and we can get some good application for this so let's do a memory verse together then we'll pray Ezekiel 36 verse 26 and 27 I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Okay, so let's skip straight down to the next page. And the title there is, What God required of the priests so that they would remain holy. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for showing us, um, in your word, what it takes to be holy, what it means to be holy, to be separated from the world and separated to you. So, from the world and to you. And so, I pray that your Holy Spirit will give us understanding as we go through these principles today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're going to see this week, the priests are called to holy living in several different areas of their life. And I've got a quote from Wearsby who sums it up really well, so I'm just going to read it out. The Lord will also be particular about the conduct of the priests. He tells them what to wear, how to groom themselves, not to drink wine while ministering, who not to marry, and at all times to show and teach the difference between clean and unclean, even if a relative dies. They will act as judges and see to it that the law was honoured and obeyed. So, again, there's lots of spiritual applications for us in the church from these physical or external laws that are given to the priests. And last week we looked at you know, the man-pleaser, God-pleaser situation where who are we trying to please, what's our motivation, are we trying to please men or are we trying to please God? And that's going to continue today, actually. So I'm going to read Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, just so we can be prepared for what's coming. So Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, it says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So let's read Ezekiel 44:17 and 18. No sweat the clothing of the priests. It says, And it shall be, whenever they enter the gates of the inner court, that they shall put on linen garments, no will shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. Interesting, eh? So, summary of that is whenever they enter the gates of the inner court, that they shall put on linen garments, no will shall come upon them. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. So, pretty good practical dress code, isn't it? You don't want to be, you know, all rugged up when you're trying to work and you end up sweating. So there is a spiritual application for this, and we're going to come back to it at the end. And I've got a quote from Alexander, which gives us a bit of a hint. The linen, not only depicted purity by its whiteness, but its coolness kept the priest from perspiring and thereby becoming unclean. All right, verse 19. Be real, admit your faults, and don't play the hypocrite. When they go out to the outer court, to the outer court, to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered and leave them in the holy chambers and put on other garments and in the holy garments they shall not sanctify the people. So this is different to the old covenant law. Here they take off their priestly garments before they come out to the people. Interesting, isn't it? So they minister to the Lord like in the inner court and all the people in the outer court outside the area where the altar is. But they're not allowed to be around the people with their holy garments on. They have to leave them in the holy chambers. So who are these priests that go into the inner chambers? Do you remember from last week? It's the sons of Zadok. It's the priestly family chosen to minister to the Lord, descended from Aaron and they are the ones who are allowed into the inner court and the temple itself so when they're finished serving and worshipping and fellowshipping with God they were to remove their priestly garments and put everyday clothes on so why, why is this? why this rule to not be seen in their white priestly garments by the rest of the people so there's two ways I'm going to look at this Firstly, the literal or primary meaning. There's two principles in the Old Testament relating holy things. So first, if you are holy, then you're not allowed to touch anything that would make you unholy. So if you're holy, you're not allowed to touch anything that's unholy. Does that make sense? Secondly, if you're not holy, then you're not allowed to touch something that is holy. So they're the two principles and in the millennial kingdom especially on the temple mount we have this separation of what is clean from what is unclean the holy from the unholy and so therefore the priests were not allowed to touch sweat or be sweaty as would make them ceremonially unclean sweat was considered unclean in the bible now can you figure out why that might be where did sweat come from?
1: Work. But what kind of work?
0: Hard work, yes. yeah, And that came after the fall. You should work by the sweat of your brow. So, sweat is a picture of sin. And also, the common people were not allowed to touch what is holy. And the priestly garments will be considered holy during the millennium. So, like, the people aren't allowed to touch the altar or the incense altar inside the temple and that, the garments will be considered as holy as those things. So that's why they have to take them off. And the verse that really makes this clear where Jesus speaks it is 43 verse 12 where it says, This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. So it's emphasizing that the main point is god's holiness now there's a second application here that a few people thought of and i thought of as well and that is avoiding pride so pride causes me to want to appear more spiritual or holy than i really am so consider that everything pride touches becomes unclean or unacceptable to god and this brings us back to the idea of being a man pleaser or a god pleaser so Where does true holiness start? On the outside or the inside? Do I change my behavior or do I change my heart? Yeah, well, can I change my heart? No, it's God that's got to change my heart, yeah? But I need to be willing to work with him and submit to him for that to happen. So true holiness or righteousness must begin on the inside and only happens when I humble myself and surrender my will to God, laying my life down as a living sacrifice on God's altar as we learnt last week, Romans 12.1. And how do we do it? Well, we pray as Jesus did. Not my will, but yours be done. Luke 22.42. And remember last week we talked about the definition of worship from Genesis 22? Worship is willing, obedience and submission motivated by love. And that's what makes a person a God-pleaser. If you've only got external righteousness, then that makes you a...
1: Pharisee. Yeah, a Pharisee.
0: How did Jesus describe the Pharisee? Well, like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Matthew 23, 27, and 28. So, Think of the, this is just an application. Think of the hidden white linen priestly garments as speaking or representing our personal holiness or our practical righteousness before God, not my positional righteousness. So, who am I when nobody else can see me, when I'm all alone? Do I decide to put on the white priestly garments of inner holiness and submission to God and spend time in in inner court ministering to and in fellowship with the Lord? Or, Do I seek to please my flesh, putting on the dirty garments of my sinful nature? So, who I am, when no one else is looking, is the real me. Not what others think of me. The me that people see on Sundays and other, you know, public activities, yeah? When you go to work and whatever. So, remember that without these only seen by God, white linen garments, this inner holiness... With my life fully submitted to God, I cannot approach God to enjoy fellowship with God. So it doesn't matter what we look like on the outside. What matters is where our hearts at. Is it humble? Is it submitted to God? Is it pure? And John Corson gives a good application of when our holiness is external and not internal. And he says, Keep in mind that all these regulations for the millennial priests have application to us for Peter tells us we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. When the priests were going out among the people, they were to take off their holy garments and not wear them among the people. This speaks of humility. Somehow there is perversion in our personality that wants people to think we're more spiritual than we really are. So we'll wear our holy garments and say, as I was praying for you today at three in the morning, to let people know how spiritual we are. The injunction here is important. Don't parade around in your holy garments trying to impress people with where you have been. So I'm just going to continue on this thing for a bit. Jesus gave the same message, but in a different context. The context he is talking about was giving. So we can apply this to anything we do. Whether it be praying, Bible reading, you know, being a good parent, worker, whatever it might be, if we're doing it to impress outwardly, then yeah. It's not right. So Matthew six, one to four. Watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets, to call attention to the acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. Now, there's actually a bit of history behind this trumpet blowing, so I'm going to read it to you. John Coulson, again, explains it well. In the area of praying, giving, and fasting, Jesus will talk about the hypocrites or hypocrites. Hypocrites is a Greek word that means mask wearer. Hypocrites were actors in the Greek theatre who wore masks, very exaggerated in form, with huge smiles and frowns, so that even people in the back row could see what kind of emotion was being portrayed. We get the word two-faced from the same idea. Jesus said, don't be hypocritical in your giving. How do the hypocrites give? Good question, right? Originally, There was an area at the side of the temple courtyard called the Chamber of the Secret. Interesting, eh? People would go there and drop gifts designated for the poor in a large chest called the trumpet. Later, the poor would come to the Chamber of the Secret and receive gifts from the trumpet. It was all done very discreetly with humility and honesty. So, can you picture that? You know, if you wanted to give a gift, you'd go into the side of the temple Where there's not many people, and you know, you put your money in there and no one sees. And then later, it's distributed. So no one knows who's given and no one knows who got your money, yeah? So it's a good thing. But as the years went on, the Pharisees decided it wasn't practical to go all the way to the temple to give alms to the poor. So instead, they tied a small brass or silver trumpet to their belts. Then, Whenever they wanted to give to the poor, they stood on a street corner and blew their trumpets.
1: So this is what Jesus is talking about. This is
0: the custom of the day. Upon hearing this, the poor people in the area would gather around the generous Pharisee as he distributed his alms with great flourish, while everyone around said, "My, look how righteous he is." Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites because they gave not out of concern for the poor, but they might be seen by men. And Wisby also comments on this. He says, Jesus also warned about the danger of hypocrisy, the sin of using religion to cover up sin. A hypocrite is not a person who falls short of his high ideals or who occasionally sins because all of us experience these failures a hypocrite deliberately uses religion to cover up his sins and promote his own gains. And he repeats the idea. The Greek word translate hypocrite originally meant an actor who wears a mask. The righteousness of the Pharisees was insincere and dishonest. They practiced their religion for the applause of men, not for the reward of God. But true righteousness must come from within. We should test ourselves to see whether we are sincere and honest in our Christian commitment. So, as I said, we can apply this, what Jesus said about giving gifts, and apply it to how we like to be seen by others. My human nature, I don't know about yours, but definitely mine, we want to be seen as more righteous than we really are and less wicked than we really are. Is anyone like me or am I the only one? (laughs) No, it's just a sinful nature, isn't it? We want to see it as being better than what we really are. So my human nature wants to hide or minimize my sins and failures while at the same time emphasizing my good works or outward holiness. And so I develop amongst my circle of friends a reputation that I must work so hard to maintain, like how much I read the Bible, or how much time I spend praying or witnessing or fasting or whatever it might be, serving. So, it's like I'm blowing my trumpet and bringing attention to myself. And of course, I don't do it you know, outwardly, but just subtly, you know, just just a little mention over here. So, the summary here and the important point is that playing the hypocrite and maintaining a false reputation is hard and sweaty work and will keep the believer out of fellowship with God. Why? because it necessarily means the believer must hide some or all of their sins from those around them in order to maintain the outward illusion of a deep walk with God. As always, pride is the root cause of this grievous sin, which causes our hearts to grow hard both toward God and others. So why does hypocrisy keep the believer out of fellowship with God? Because a hidden sin is an unconfessed sin. Satan knows that if he can shame us into disobeying the command Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another, that ye may be healed, James 5.16, then we will remain under the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. 2 Timothy 2.26. Thus playing the hypocrite is hard and sweaty work because maintaining the illusion of a holy life by outward observances is all done in the strength of the flesh, the sinful nature. This satanic condemnation is why so many believers continue or fall back into habitual sin. They think, what would people think of me if they knew I was doing this thing again? I can't let them know. You would damage my now fake reputation of being a mature Christian, you know, being spiritual. And thus they don't get help, and so continue in their sin.
1: So a couple of questions I'll put here. Why pretend to be holy when I really can be holy? We can be empowered
0: by the Holy Spirit. The resources are there. We're going to find that later. And why pretend to be in fellowship with God when I truly can be? So, and you can see Luke 18, verse 9 to 14. So I just need to be real with God and others. And the fake it till you make it is a life in the pit of hell. You know. So don't try and do that. I mean, just be real. And I want you to consider Jesus' invitation. He says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28-30, Then Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light so what is jesus going to teach us when we come to him it's a very hard lesson it's in bold there let me teach you because i am humble so if we're going to come to jesus we need to have a teachable spirit he says let me teach you in another version it says learn from me so if we're proud we have an unteachable spirit if we're humble he will teach us and he will cause us to become humble and of course that only comes by humiliation so now verses 20 through 22 the holy behavior of the priests in their appearance regarding alcohol and marriage so they shall neither shave their heads nor let the hair grow long but they shall keep their hair well trimmed no priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court they shall not take as a wife a widow or a divorced woman, but take virgins of the descendants of the house of Israel or widows of priests. This is verse 20 through 22. So verse 20, the hair. They should keep their hair well trimmed. So there's no specific regulation for how to wear your hair as a priest. But you're not allowed to shave it, and you're not allowed to have it too long, you Just you keep it nice and tidy. So why? Well, our outward appearance does matter. The impressions we make on people, especially first impressions, do count. They tell people about who we are. Now verse 21, no priest shall drink wine. So that's it. It's a blanket rule, no alcohol. And I've just said alcohol or any other drug and holiness don't mix. We need our full faculties if we're going to be able to offer intelligent worship to God. And verse 22, it says, They shall not take as a wife a widow or divorced woman. So the sons of Zadok in the days of Ezekiel's temple were also to observe the marriage regulations relevant to the priests of Israel. So nothing's changed in this case from the Old Covenant to the New. That's David Guzik. Now, Ezekiel 44, 23 and 24, I've called this walking the talk. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In controversy they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed meetings and they shall hallow my Sabbath. So verse 23 and 24 says, They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy they shall keep my laws and my statutes. Can you see the two things there? They shall teach and they shall keep. If you're going to be teaching, you also need to be keeping it. So, pastors are teaching the congregations and parents are teaching their children and any other leadership position you might find yourself in, we need to teach the difference between right and wrong, holy and unholy. And we need to walk what we talk. Now, my dad said to me one time, when I was middle teens or something, do what I say, not what I do. Because he wasn't a good example. And how much respect do you think I had for him after that? Nothing, yeah. So... The pastor or parent who does not lead by example cannot expect their congregation or family to experience a close walk with God as we can't lead someone where we haven't been. So consistency is a key. If you say something, then do it. Otherwise, it's best not to say anything at all and avoid being hypocrite. We need to be like Paul when he said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now, he wasn't perfect. You know, he had an argument with Silas and, you know, life happens. But he would, as the Bible says, as he taught, ask for forgiveness. And he would forgive and they would mend those relationships. And in controversy, they shall stand as judges. So the Levites were given the role of being judges over the people meaning they had the responsibility to resolve disputes and settle legal matters. So, they were given this responsibility because they had a good working knowledge of the word of God. Now, guess what?
1: Put your hand up here if you're a priest.
0: Well, if you don't put your hand up, you're not saved. You Better put your hand up. So, if you're a believer, you are a king and priest in God's kingdom, right? So, in the church, as priests, we are instructed to judge among ourselves. And I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 6, 1-6. When one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? Interesting, Some hey? Someday we will be judging the world. And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? Wow. So as a believer, we're going to have this privilege of judging angels. So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why go... To outside judges, who are not respected by the church like the unbelievers, I am saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide these issues? A bit of sarcasm there, but instead one believer sues another right in front of unbelievers. So, just a little application there. As Christians, be very careful about taking people to court, especially if it's another Christian. And that passage goes on to say, it's better to take a loss than to be a bad example for Christ. Verses 25 through 27, remaining pure. They shall not defile themselves by coming near a dead person. Only for father or mother, for son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister, may they defile themselves. After he is cleansed, they shall count seven days for him, and on the day that he goes to the sanctuary to minister in the sanctuary, he must offer his sin offering in the inner court says the Lord God. So, verse 25, it says, They shall not defy themselves by coming near a dead person. And David Guzik says, As was true of the priests commanded by Moses, so it was to be of the priests in the time of Ezekiel's temple. They were to avoid dead bodies and carcasses. Theirs was to be a ministry of life, not death. Alexander says, There would be individuals entering the millennium with natural bodies from the tribulation period. These, of course, would ultimately die physically, though physical life would be much longer during the millennium. That's a conversation I have with different people. Will people die in the millennium? But looking at this verse, it appears that people will be dying during the millennium. They live a long time, but they'll probably still die. So, otherwise, it wouldn't be any dead bodies. They wouldn't need this command. Since death is viewed in scripture as levitically defiling bringing to remembrance most forcefully the sin of Adam, which introduced death into the human family. Priests will have to be careful in their conduct with the dead. So death is a result of sin, and therefore it's defiling. That's the principle there. He must offer his sin offering. The priests were allowed to come near or have contact with a dead body only if they were a close relative as a part of their mourning for that person. But after being near or touching the body, he must wait seven days and then offer the prescribed sacrifice before resuming his priestly duty. So that's what they had to do.
1: Now, they finish
0: finished with an application, keeping cool, walking in the spirit. So this goes back to this whole idea of sweat. So I'm going to read verse 18 again. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. So, before we get into it, just think of anything that causes sweat as being like the old nature and anything that is cool and refreshing the new nature as an overview. So, sweat. Sweat represents human effort. Keeping cool represents walking by the power of the Spirit. Trying hard to be good enough to try to achieve and maintain our own righteousness is hard work. It makes us sweat. And this is a result of the curse, shown in a practical way by the man now has to grow food in a post-curse world. So Genesis 3.19. God told Adam, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So before the curse, food production was easy. Work was easy. There was no sweat, literally. So working back then was no sweat. False. Awesome. So yes, they would have been busy as they exercised their dominion over, you know, probably then just the Garden of Eden. And they gathered food for themselves and looked after the place, kept it neat and tidy. But it was easy work. Imagine today that all our agricultural soils were awesome, you know, full of nutrients. There were no weeds, there were no plant diseases, no insect pests, no other pests. You know, kangaroos and rabbits, all that kind of stuff. Rodents and mice. And all the farmer had to do was put the seed in, fertilise and harvest. With a guaranteed bumper crop every year because it had just the right amount of rain every year. Imagine how easy
1: that would be. That's what it was like
0: for Adam and Eve before the fall. So when we accept God's provision for us, life is easy. But when we choose to reject God's provision and provide for ourselves, like Adam and Eve did, life becomes much harder. So we see this illustration regarding the growing of food but it's also true in a spiritual sense, especially regarding our practical righteousness. So, what does sweat look like in the believer? Well, unbelief or a lack of faith or trust in God can and will cause relapses into addiction and habitual sin, anxiety, depression, worry, bitterness due to unforgiveness, lack of joy, a prideful, controlling and critical spirit, spiritual exhaustion, anger, drunkenness, lack of self-control, selfishness, envy, jealousy, rage, sexual immorality, a desire for things of this world.
1: Makes for a hard life, doesn't it?
0: Now, we come to the Sabbath rest. This whole idea of rest is really important in Scripture. And it's the antithesis to sweat. Okay, It's the opposite of sweat. It started in Genesis when God rested or ceased his work of creating on the seventh day. He ceased from his work. So Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So, This is a picture for us. We need to cease from our works as well. We'll come to that soon. So, the Sabbath rest is not just doing nothing, but it's a cessation of what I was doing in my own strength. Now, a couple of things we need to understand about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to the nation of Israel specifically. So, the nation of Israel was given the command to rest, to cease from working on the seventh day, that is, Friday night, Saturday day. And the keeping of the Sabbath is actually a part of the nation of Israel's ceremonial law. And its main purpose being to make Israel different from the rest of the nations. And we can read Exodus 31, 15 through 17 is one example of this. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual or ongoing covenant. Verse 17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel for ever. So who's it between? Between me, this is God speaking and the children of Israel for how long? Forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Another verse we can read is Ezekiel 20 verse 12. It says, And I gave Israel my Sabbath days of rest, as a sign between them and me. It was to remind them that I am the Lord who has set them apart to be holy. So, God's perpetual ongoing covenant with the physical nation of Israel was for them to keep the Sabbath. Now, I think that the whole world in the millennium will be keeping the Sabbath. That's my understanding of it. At least it will be in Israel, probably the whole world, because Jesus will enforce his righteousness on the whole world. And there will only be one religion. Now, a couple of notes to answer some questions that most likely people who have the Ten Commandments were given to Israel, God's chosen nation initially. yeah. And God says numerous times as we just read in the Old Testament that the Sabbath was only for Israel to keep, the purpose being that it would sanctify or set them apart from the other nations. And just like the church is supposed to be different from the world, so there's their application there. Israel was given these laws and sometimes it was just so they'd be different they would be set apart. We need to be set apart from the world as well. We need to be different from the world. And a little challenge for you, look for yourselves, and you will find that nowhere in the New Testament is a church commanded to keep the Sabbath, to meet on a Saturday. And we actually read that the church was meeting on the first day of the week in a few places there. And... The rest of the Ten Commandments, apart from the Fourth Commandment, keep the Sabbath, are moral laws and apply to all people. However, it's pretty obvious that there's a practical or health benefit in resting one day in seven. So it's good for us emotionally, spiritually, and physically to have a rest one day in seven. That's the way God made us. And so God set that pattern, the seven-day working week. So it doesn't matter what day it is for us as believers, as Christians in the church age, but try and have that one day of rest to rejuvenate your your body and your soul and your spirit. So, also, while Christians aren't obligated to keep or observe the weekly Saturday Sabbath feast, they are strongly encouraged to cease from their own works and instead trust God's strength and power, which is the application or the fulfillment, the true meaning of or the reality of the Sabbath. We're going to get into that in a minute. So shadow versus reality. So this is the symbol versus its spiritual reality or ultimate fulfillment. So God gave laws to teach us things, yeah? The laws that God gave Israel are really helpful because they help us to understand spiritual things. So the Passover, the Passover helps us to see how God's judgment passes over us when our sins have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And you see Revelation one five, through repentance and faith, Mark 1.15. So it's important that we understand the difference between shadows, that is the physical observance of a feast day, and the reality, which is a spiritual application or ultimate fulfillment. So an uh, important verse for this is Colossians 2.16 and 17. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holidays or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules, see that these rules, it's not a moral law, it's a rule, ceremonial rule, are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. So as an example, keeping the Passover never saved anyone. Why? It's only a picture. It's a shadow of the real substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So in the same way, keeping or observing the Sabbath every week will not cause you to enter into God's rest. Just because you worship on a Saturday, it doesn't mean you're going to have a humble heart So what does the Bible say the spiritual reality of the Sabbath rest is? Again, we come back to Matthew. Eleven twenty eight through thirty, Jesus invites us to rest. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now, from the Amplified, it says it just give you a bit more detail. It's good. So I'm going to read the same verses from the Amplified Bible. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and overburdened. Overburdened. Heavy laden, overburdened. Do we feel like that sometimes? And I will cause you to rest. I will ease and relieve and refresh yourselves. So that's the expanded meaning of this. Phrase, I will give you rest. So when we're heavy laden and overburdened, God will give us rest. He will ease and relieve and refresh our souls. Verse 29, for the Amplified, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle, meek, and humble, lowly, in heart, and you will find rest, relief, and ease, and refreshment, and recreation, and blessed quiet for your souls. Who would like that? But we can find it in Christ, yeah? If we submit ourselves to him. For my yoke is wholesome, useful, good, not harsh, hard, sharp, or pressing, but comfortable, gracious, and pleasant. And my burden is light and easy to be borne. So if we're doing things in God's strength, then it's not hard. If we're doing things in our own strength, we're going to (laughs) sweat. And that's why I said at the very start, think of putting those clothes on, yeah? Putting the sinful nature clothes on, you know, their anger and their unforgiveness, they're going to make us sweat, life's going to be hard. But if you put the other clothes on, the fruit of the Spirit, life will be much cooler, easier. Hebrews 4.10, another verse that helps us to understand what this rest is. Hebrews 4.10 from the New Living Translation, For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. And from the Amplified, for he who has once entered God's rest has also ceased from the weariness and pain of human labors. So it really explains it well there. When entering into God's rest is ceasing from the weariness and pain of human labors, just as God rested from those labors peculiar his own. So God's rest is ceasing from the weariness and pain of our human labors, our human effort. So you might ask, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm going to ask you a question. What happens when you try to keep God's moral law, in thought, word, and deed, in your own strength? Like love your neighbor, love your husband, love your kids, love your wife, you know, all those things. If you try and do it in your own strength, what's going to happen? Well, firstly, it's going to be really difficult. Secondly, you're going to fail, eventually. Why? Because you can't do it. It's impossible for you to do what God wants in your strength because you're trying to do it by the power of your sinful nature. You're trying to do good with evil, yeah? We need to realize that we need to rely on and utilize the power of the Holy Spirit living in us if we are going to have any chance of living a godly life. Only then will we experience God's commands as God's promises. So, Chuck Smith said this always remember that the difficulty of a task is measured by the strength, power, and ability of the agent doing the work. So, if God is doing the work, then there is no difficult task because nothing is difficult for God. Does that make sense? So, remember God's commands are God's promises. You know, husbands, love your wives sacrificially, wives, submit to your husbands. Or, fathers, don't exasperate your kids, but raise them in the nurture and admission of the Lord. You know, these things are humanly impossible. This is hard. But if I allow God to live His life in me, to empower me, if I surrender and stop relying on my own strength and start relying on His strength, then things will change. So, let's have a look at some verses that illustrate this Romans 8, 5 and 6. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. And get this, so letting your sinful nature control your minds lead to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. So, who are we going to let control us? Will it be our sinful nature? Are we Are going to be sweating? Working hard? Laboring? Yeah? Or are we going to Let the Spirit control us and be wearing those nice, light and cool linen garments. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Verse 13, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and power to do what pleases Him. Again, God's commands are God's promises. But we must submit ourselves to Him. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. So Paul is praying that we can understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. We have the Holy Spirit in us. There's nothing we can't do. You know, God tells us to do something. He will give us the strength to do it. I remember Corrie ten Boom, and she was preaching about forgiveness. And one of the guards, I can't remember the exact story now, but who mistreated her sister. And her sister didn't make it, Betsy. He walked up and extended his hand. And I'm probably getting some details wrong, but the main part of the story is that she had to make a choice. Can I go up and shake this guy's hand and accept his apology? You know, this guy who was partially responsible for the death of her sister. And yeah, she could. And it ended up that as soon as she took that step forward, that step of faith, that she gave him a hug. And there was that instant bond of forgiveness and reconciliation. Something that only God could do. So. Humanly impossible, but with God all things are possible. Galatians 2.20 My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's the reason for trusting him because he already proved he loved me and gave himself for me. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So what Christ asked us to do it's just to submit to him and let him do what he wants through us. And one of my favorite verses helps me to overcome temptation is Second Peter 1, to 3-5 By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. And skipping down a few lines These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. So God gives us the promises. When we are saved, they are all there for us to use. It's like having a check, but not cashing it. You know, we got to cash those promises in, in God's bank, and then we can experience the benefit of those promises. Yeah. We need to respond to God's promise. We need to say, "Yeah, I believe that that's true," and ask.
1: So. The big question is this, why is it so hard
0: for us as believers to submit to God, to simply stop trying to do things on our own strength, and instead just respond to God's promises of help and power? I'll just ask, you know, I'll surrender. Well, the answer is pride. It's always been that way. It's a difficult pill to swallow, that the old me is not a good person, that in my sinful nature it dwells nothing good romans seven eighteen I don't even have the desire to do the right thing, it says in Romans eight verse seven and eight. My sinful nature is always hostile towards God. it never did obey God's laws, and it never will. So this is what it means to surrender my will to God's. I must stop relying on myself. And to do that, I must accept the reality that my sinful nature is morally bankrupt. It has nothing to offer my life with Christ. You know, I have to rely on God. So Now we come to the question of, how do I enter God's Sabbath rest, and what will stop me? So now, to finish, we're going to go through a section of the book of Hebrews. And this is really powerful. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95, verse 7 to 11, and he uses this To show us the reality or fulfillment of the shadow or the physical observance of the Sabbath. So I've set this up so I've got the verses as normal text and my comments or explanation in italics as we go through. So this is to explain what it means to enter into God's Sabbath rest, which is what that Psalm 95 is all about. So Hebrews. Chapter 3, verse 7, through to chapter 4, verse 13, but breaking it down into small chunks. Verse 7, that is what the Holy Spirit says. So, very small chunk. (laughs) Notice here, what is the writer of the book of Hebrews saying? Who wrote this? Who's saying this? This quotation from Psalms? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says. So the ultimate author of the scripture is the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if you want to hear from God, read your Bible. The Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit said to me this morning, really, he spoke to you? Yeah, in Psalm 95. The whole book is inspired by God. It's God breathed. So it doesn't matter what you're reading, you can still say, yeah, God spoke to me. It's right there. And today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So... Right away we see that the reality of the Sabbath, remember we have got the shadow and the reality. The shadow is the physical observance, you know, not working on the Saturday. But the reality of the Sabbath is not about rule-keeping, about ceasing from physical work on Saturdays, but rather about having a soft heart that responds to and obeys the Holy Spirit when He communicates to us. So today when you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Remember, we're talking about how do we enter into God's rest. As Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness, there your ancestors tested me and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them and I said, their hearts always turn from me. They refused to do what I tell them. So in my anger I took an oath, they will never enter my place of rest or my rest. And that's the end of the quote from Psalm 95, verse 7 through 11. So, why didn't the Israelites enter God's rest? Because they hardened their hearts by choosing to continuously rebel against God, even when God gave them any evidence of his love, provision, and power. So, important application here. This shows that we can be the people of God, the church, and yet still fail to enjoy all God wants to give us. All because our hearts are hard and proud and we are choosing to love our sin and independence more than we love God. And another important point here is that the nation of Israel was keeping or observing the Sabbath shadow, the physical observance of the Saturday, right? The whole time they were in the wilderness. Every Saturday they would keep the Sabbath, they would cease from their physical labor. I can prove this because in Numbers 15, 32 through 36, There was a guy who was picking up sticks on the Sabbath and they saw him do it and they brought him to Moses and Aaron and God said, put him to death. So do you think anyone's going to be doing any work on the Sabbath? I don't think so. All right. So they were keeping the Sabbath. They didn't do any work. They collected the amount of manna they needed on the Friday for two days and then they didn't have to collect it on the Saturday and, and all that kind of stuff. So they were keeping the Sabbath. But it says here... Their hearts were hard, and they never entered into God's rest. So they were observing the physical Sabbath, the shadow, but not experiencing the reality, the spiritual reality, the fulfillment of that. And this is the danger of legalism. We can observe the outward ritual or shadow, outward holiness, but miss the spiritual reality. Now, I've heard this picture described before. You know, the man, he's dancing and talking with his wife's shadow. Can you imagine that? And his wife's standing there saying, Honey, why don't you dance with me?
1: And that's what it's like when we as believers focus on rules instead of relationship. We're dancing with the shadow. Christ wonders
0: why we won't talk and walk with him. And the application for us today is that we may not be keeping the physical Sabbath shadow, taking Saturday off, but our prayer fellowship and barbering can turn into a loveless obligation. And we can miss, just like Israelites did, the reality of entering into God's Sabbath rest, and instead we're just going through the motions. And keeping on in Hebrews there, it says in verse 12, Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. He's talking to us now, right? Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. Again, he's talking to believers. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says, Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, as Israel did when they rebelled. And he's going to repeat that several times. Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. That's his plea. Yeah? So we're starting to understand what it means by entering into God's rest. That is the reality or fulfillment of the Sabbath. So if having a hard and proud heart means that we've failed to enter into the reality of God's Sabbath rest, the fulfillment of God's Sabbath rest, then having a soft and humble heart must mean we have entered into his rest. It's that easy. Hard heart, we miss out. Soft heart, we enter in. Because we're relying on him. We've submitted to him. We've given up trying to do things on our own strength. Now, there's also a reward for faithfully trusting God and choosing to humble ourselves before God. We will share in all that belongs to Christ. We mentioned this before. God has a lot he wants to give us. A lot of promises he made available to us. Sometimes we don't use those promises. We want to do it on our own strength. 16. And who was it that rebelled against God, even though they heard his voice? Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt, and who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpses lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. So, the picture's getting clearer as we read through, yeah? Unbelief, hard-heartedness, a rebellious nature will keep us from entering the reality or final fulfillment of God's Sabbath rest. 4 verse 1, God's promise of entering his rest still stands, so we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But to them it did no good, because I didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, In my anger I took an oath they will never enter my place of rest, even though this rest has been ready since he made the world. So the question we want to ask now is, Why should I tremble with fear that I miss out or fail to experience the reality of fulfillment of God's Sabbath rest? Why should I tremble with fear? I'm going to miss out on this Sabbath rest, you know? Because, this is the description I got from different verses, right? Because walking in God's power, being controlled by God's Spirit is so awesome, so freeing, so dynamic. It's life, it's peace, it's love, it's joy, it's freedom, it's power, it's fulfillment, it's contentment, it's beauty, it's healing, it's comforting, it's encouraging, it's empowering, it's gracious, it's restoring, it's giving, it's blessing, it's beautiful, it's indescribably awesome. So we should be trembling with fear. We don't want to miss out on those things. This is a life that God wants us to live. Fulfilled, content, beautiful, healed, you know, those old scars of unforgiveness healed. In first Corinthians two nine and twelve, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, the Holy Spirit. That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. We don't even we can't even comprehend the blessings that God wants to bless us with. Remember they're all spiritual blessings, yeah. We need to just say, God, show me. You know, I know you want to bless me, and we make ourselves available to be blessed. And it's like a little kid, John Corson tells this little story when he's talking about grace. And the little kid goes up to the ice cream machine, like in one of those restaurants where you get a buffet or you eat. Sizzlers in Perth, they used to call Sizzlers. And uh, the soft serve machine, you pull the handle and she puts her ice cream there and it just keeps coming out, you know, going all over the place. So that's what it's like for us. The blessings don't stop. But we must put our cone under the machine. And
1: we'll get as much as we want.
0: So another illustration here, the Christian who is living by their own strength is like the son of a billionaire who has been given a key to a mansion complete with servants and plentiful food and a comfortable bed, but instead he decides to live the life of the homeless, completely destitute. So as a believer, we're rich,
1: but we can live as a poor person. And
0: there's another warning here, which you get from the verses in Hebrews there. Just because we read the Word of God, that's not enough. We need faith as well. We need to have a soft, humble, and teachable heart. Otherwise, no amount of Bible reading will help us. It won't change us. And a quote from Hebrews there, But it did them no good because I didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. The Word of God was spoken to them, but it didn't no good. So be careful. Back in Hebrews, We know it is ready, that is the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest. We know it is ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day God rested from all his work. But in the other passage God said, They will never enter my rest. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard the good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest. And that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Psalm 95, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So, here is more good news for us. When's the time to enter into God's rest? It's today. It's not too late. It doesn't matter if you've been struggling for years and years. Today is a day when you can cease from your own human effort. God's rest is always available. Always there. That's what the passage is said. Verse 6. So God's rest is there for people to enter. The time you can do it is now. Just don't harden your heart. Soften your heart. Enter into this rest. Let God control your life. Let God empower your life. It's like God's mercy is you every morning. We start fresh every morning. And verse 8 in Hebrews continues. Now if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labours just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest, but if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fall. Now the illustration expands a bit here. Going into the promised land is a picture of faith. They had to trust God to go into the land, because there was no more manner. There's no more cloud and fire, and there was battles, major battles, big cities with big people. It was scary. And so walking into the promised land is a picture of faith. In the wilderness, it was a picture of the flesh, complaining, you know, God leading you by the hand, come on, where do we go? It's like you know, stubborn kid. But walking by faith is like, okay, I believe you, I trust you, let's go. But even that, when the Israelites went into the promised land, was still only a picture. It wasn't the reality, it wasn't the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath rest only came now, today. Why? Because of the new covenant. It's only possible because of God living inside of us. We can't obey what God wants us to do without that power of the Holy Spirit. Again, I just want to warn you, as the Hebrews does here, even with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we can still choose not to enter the reality of God's Sabbath rest. Quoting Hebrews again, so let us do our best enter that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. Now, guess what the next verse is. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So we want to enter into God's rest. How do we know the condition of our heart? Get into the word. Ask God to reveal it to you. Humble yourself. Have some faith that his promises are true. So we come back to where we started with our hearts being so deceitful and wicked and leading us astray so easily the only way to correctly diagnose what we're thinking and what we're doing is it right or wrong? Is it of the right motive? Is to get into the Word. Am I in the flesh
1: or in the spirit? Again, get into the Word.
0: So, conclusion To so experience the joys of abiding with Christ, we must both love and obey God. And we can only do this as we enter the reality of or fulfillment of God's Sabbath rest. Simple repentance is the cure for pride and all sin. So don't hide your sin any longer. Instead, confess it to a brother or sister in Christ and free yourself from Satan's condemnation that is holding you in your own prison of guilt and fear of what others think of you. Let us humble ourselves so that we can be free and enjoy our new life in Christ. So Father, I thank you for this principle in scripture of sweat and rest. Sweat being our human effort. The agonizing human effort of trying to do things which are impossible. Trying to be someone we can't be on our own strength. But Lord, when we let go and we say, I can't but you can, And then life will suddenly change. And so we pray that we can experience that kind of beautiful, refreshing fellowship and strengthened walk with you. The situations, the circumstances probably won't change, but our response will change, our heart will change. And so we just thank you
1: for who you are. And we look to Jesus' example on the cross.
0: And he said, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. We can do the same thing. As an application, Lord, help us to say, no matter how bad things get, God, into your hand I commit my spirit. And Lord, just to give everything over to you, to give up trying. God, you take over.
1: So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.